Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews you can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at more recent movies out in theaters, VOD streaming services. You can check out that link anytime at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a new series, a four-part series this time, and they are all part of the same franchise. And I'm talking specifically about Jaws. The Jaws franchise, two films come from the 1970s, Two films come from the 1980s, but to talk about those films in the 1980s, I do feel that I have to talk about the films from the 70s first, because they're all interconnected in many ways. Jaws is from 1975, of course. It is a PG-rated film. It predates PG-13, definitely would get a PG-13 today. It almost got an R rating for reasons I'll get into in a moment. It has violence, language, brief nudity, and a scene of drug use. The runtime is two hours and four minutes. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton are in the film. Steven Spielberg is the director and the screenplay credited to Carl Gottlieb and Peter Benchley, which is based off of his book. And speaking of that book, nearly a year prior to that book's publication in February 1974, the film producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown, in collaboration with Universal Pictures, they acquired the rights for a screen adaptation of Jaws. Jaws, at that time, was a novel that was being written by a news reporter named Peter Benchley. And Peter Benchley had this idea for Jaws after he had read this account of Frank Mundus, who is this fisherman who had caught a two-ton shark kind of a character in his own right, and he began to imagine Mundus as an Ahab-like character in this quest for a great white a la Moby Dick. Peter Benchley described himself as a shark freak. He spent childhood summers shark hunting off of the island of Nantucket. After he caught the sharks, he would remove the jaws of the sharks he caught as souvenirs. The completed story by Benchley concerns, very simply, a man-eating shark terrorizing a Long Island resort town. The pre-release buzz for this book was rare for a first-time writer like Peter Benchley. He was known more for being the son of author Nathaniel Benchley and the grandson of famed humorist Robert Benchley. The unpublished manuscript for Jaws, it sparked a fierce bidding war with Columbia Pictures and Universal Pictures. Zanuck and Brown who were working with Universal, it cost them $175,000 for the rights and 10% of the profits of the movie and $75,000 on top of that for three screenplay revisions by Benchley. There's a big payday for Benchley. Bantam also paid $575,000 for the soft cover edition rights. All of this was a lot of money back then. It doesn't seem so much nowadays, I guess. Now, due to the difficult production, Zanuck Brown, they sought an experienced hand to direct Alfred Hitchcock, John Sturgis, many others who had made thrillers, they were all considered. But 27-year-old director Steven Spielberg, he was at that time busy working on the Sugarland Express for Zanuck Brown and Universal, he spotted the manuscript for Jaws on Zanuck's desk, and he was intrigued by the title, so he decided to read it over the course of a weekend. And when Spielberg finished reading this manuscript, he felt he had the vision necessary to make a truly frightening but very highly commercial movie from this premise. 
He let Zanuck and Brown know that he had an interest in it, but they already had a director by that point. His name was Dick Richards, and Dick Richards happened to have the same talent agent as Benchley, Mike Medavoy, and so he came as part of the deal. But Spielberg didn't have to wait very long before the job opened up for him. Benchley did not want Dick Richards to direct his film because he kept referring to the shark as a whale during their conversation, and he felt that he just was not going to ever get this concept. Zanuck and Brown decided to give Spielberg a shot, though by that time, the young director had already talked himself out of taking the job. He didn't want it anymore. He had qualms about taking on this very high-profile effort, and he was uncertain that he could deliver with this shark and an ocean shoot, knowing that it would probably break his career if it didn't come off well. Spielberg also had problems as he started to think about it with Peter Benchley's book, especially in its needless subplots. He thought that the book was only really interesting when the shark hunt was underway, and that was toward the final third of the book. Zanuck and Brown, though, they managed to kind of talk him into it in a way. Although technically a newcomer to directing, Spielberg had really directed films for over a decade. He had made home movies as a kid with whatever movie equipment that he could. He made his first film, Western, at the age of 13, and that was starring all of his friends from the neighborhood. In college, he started making low-budget short films with money that was donated by people who believed in his talent. He had a 35mm short called Amblin, and that won a couple of notable festival prizes and the attention of Sid Scheinberg, the president of MCA and Universal Pictures. At the age of 21, without enrolling in any film school whatsoever, Spielberg dropped out of college with a seven-year contract with one of the biggest entertainment studios in the world. Now, at this time, Spielberg envisioned himself as a movie maker, not a filmmaker. Critics loved the Sugarland Express when it was finally released, but it did struggle at the box office. Spielberg said later he would trade away all of those rave reviews for a larger audience. He didn't make movies to please critics. He made them to draw audiences in. Spielberg agreed to direct Jaws if he could make the characters likable and jettison what did not work from the book, according to him. Because the Sugarland Express, which had a $3 million budget, did not do that well at the box office, Zanuck and Brown curtailed the Jaws budget to $2.5 million. Benchley had written his first draft, essentially it was a transcript of the book, when he was with the producers before Spielberg signed on. But after Spielberg came aboard, he did another draft to try to incorporate some of the new ideas. The only issue that Spielberg and Benchley argued about was Spielberg's idea for this ending that would involve the shark eating an air tank and Brody, the protagonist of the story, blowing it up. Benchley felt that this was just not going to be believable, but Spielberg told him that after two hours in his care in the film, if they were still with him, people would cheer in their seats when this occurred. Benchley did concede after the fact, after seeing the film, that Spielberg really pulled that off. Receiving Benchley's third and final draft, Spielberg was about to quit. He was going to go talk to Zanuck and tell him that he just could not see a good movie coming out of the screenplay. He wanted to do another film that he was offered called Lucky Lady, and maybe they should find somebody who would be a better fit. 
But Sid Sheinberg stepped in, his mentor, and, of course, one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. He insisted that Spielberg stay on Jaws. The producers sat with Spielberg. They talked it out, and Spielberg started writing a draft while they were there of all of the things that he had wanted from the story and of the way that he would handle the characters. After he had composed this draft outline, Zanuck and Brown shopped around for writers that could flesh out a script from that concept. When Columbo creators William Link and Richard Levinson passed, Benchley's third draft was handed to the uncredited playwright and an experienced scuba diver, which was important for the story, Howard Sackler. Sackler worked with Spielberg to try to fix some of the issues that he had. He didn't take any credit for the film, though. They removed the adulterous relationship from Benchley's book that occurred between the ichthyologist Matt Hooper and Brody's wife, Ellen, because it emasculated their intended hero. Also gone was a mafia real estate subplot that involved the mayor. And Benchley, when he read the new Sackler and Spielberg script, he grew so incensed at the changes that he sent an angry letter to David Brown, escalating the tension between all parties. During a Newsweek interview sometime later, Spielberg asserted that Benchley's view of his own book was not his view of the movie that he had wanted to make of his book. Spielberg despised Benchley's flawed and unlikable characters, and he felt that people would just root for the shark to eat them all if he was going to make a movie directly from the book. He didn't like the Peyton Place-esque romance and these overbearing allusions to Moby Dick. He felt that Jaws would be a major hit if he could strip the book down to its barest essence, the real attraction for the book. Everybody finds sharks terrifying, especially if they threaten people that they know and they love, and he was going to make characters that they would know and love by the end of the film. Benchley fired back. He proclaimed Spielberg's understanding of people came from the movies only. He grew up watching movies. He didn't know that much about real life, and that is why his characters are cliched stereotypes. He claimed that Spielberg was going to go down as the greatest second unit director in America. Spielberg, when he read about this, he squashed all of the problems by talking it out with Benchley. He said that Newsweek took a two-hour conversation and judiciously selected the more provocative quotes for their article. And Benchley, the former journalist, could relate to that. Now, before all of that got hashed out and thinking things were turning sour, Zanuck Brown offered to sell the rights for Jaws to Peter Gimble. Gimbel was a shark documentarian who had been advising the production early on, and he had expressed an interest in directing the film if something were to happen with Spielberg. He declined having to buy the rights outright to do the direction, so that left them little choice but to get Spielberg to fully commit to directing the film to completion. You know, Spielberg had his doubts all the way through this. He had tried to divorce himself on several occasions from the film. And without an approved script or a complete cast, Zanuck and Brown were growing impatient, especially with the oncoming Actors Guild strike. They wanted to get that film underway before all of that took place. So they met with Spielberg. They put on these Jaws t-shirts that he had had made to try to shame him into it. And he agreed he was going to stick around for the meantime. Seeking actors in a hurry, Zanuck and Brown wanted Charlton Heston for Brody. But Heston was too pricey, and Spielberg did not want a huge star that audiences could not view as an ordinary person. Spielberg had in mind another actor called Joe Bologna, but the producers were not as keen on that choice. After that, Spielberg pursued Robert Duvall, but Duvall did not want a lead part. Instead, he wanted to play Quint, but Spielberg didn't think that Robert Duvall could pull off that role, which he regretted thinking sometime later, because Duvall, of course is one of the great actors of his generation. Now, Roy Scheider came into the picture when he saw Spielberg. He was sitting alone at a party. 
He seemed troubled, and he asked him what was on his mind. Spielberg unloaded all of his issues that he had in trying to come up with a way to make Jaws work, and he was agonizing because he had to put together a cast in a hurry, and he didn't know who would work. And Scheider asked at that moment, hey, what about me? I'd love to do it. Spielberg took some time to come around to Scheider because he thought that uh, he was a little too much of a tough guy in the movies, but eventually he did offer him the part, which he gladly took. Now, for Ellen Brody, Richard Zanuck wanted his wife, an actress named Linda Harrison. But Spielberg, very shrewdly, he had already promised the part to Sid Sheinberg's wife, Lorraine Gary. Now, some speculated that Spielberg cast Lorraine Gary, the studio head's wife, to avoid getting fired. But Spielberg insists that Gary was the perfect Ellen. She would have won the role outright anyway. Now, for Matt Hooper, the oceanographer role, Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottoms, and Joel Gray all got looks. John Voight emerged eventually as a favorite, as did Universal's suggestion of Jan Michael Vincent. But that was before George Lucas recommended giving American Graffiti co-star Richard Dreyfuss a look. Spielberg approached Dreyfuss, but Dreyfuss was not interested at all. He was busy promoting another film called The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, and he disliked the script. In fact, he tried to talk Spielberg out of doing the picture altogether. He became disparaged that the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz was going to be a dud and that his performance was bad in it. And once everybody saw it, it was going to make it hard for him to find work. He didn't know that it was going to be a success later. So Dreyfus, he told Spielberg, he almost begged Spielberg for the role, but he said he wanted him to make changes to his character for him to fully sign on board, which he said he would do. Now, for Quint, the mad shark hunter, Spielberg wanted Lee Marvin. But Marvin was off on a fishing vacation of his own. He was searching for real fish. He didn't want to cut that vacation short to spend his summer pretending to catch a fake fish. Sterling Hayden was Zanuck and Brown's top choice, but he had tax entanglements in the U.S. He didn't want to spend all his time working just to pay off the government of the U.S. Robert Shaw, he was hot off of Zanuck and Brown's The Sting. He signed on for the opposite reason. Shaw left England to avoid taxes. Plus, the $100,000 that Zanuck and Brown were offering was a pretty good deal. Ironically, there were delays to the making of film, and that expanded Shaw's stay from six weeks to 17, so he would end up paying taxes in the United States instead. Unlike the veteran seaman Quint, Shaw spent every day on the ocean feeling seasick. To nail down a New England accent and uh, the fisherman's jargon, Shaw listened to a tape recording of a local landscape designer named Craig Killsbury, who spent most of his life as a fisherman in the area. Killsbury happens to play the ill-fated character named Ben Gardner in the film. Now, when it came to actually getting back to the film, Spielberg started to grow dissatisfied with the screenplay that he and Sackler had wrote, especially the dialogue. So Spielberg asked his old friend, a comedy writer named Carl Gottlieb, Gottlieb happens to play newspaper editor Harry Meadows in the film, and that's why he was there. He asked Gottlieb to help polish the script with more comic relief and to add some additional character touches. So Gottlieb roomed with Spielberg while they were at Martha's Vineyard, and he invited the actors over for brainstorming sessions, and what came out of it would be revised and used for the next day's shoot. Spielberg also asked other people to help with the screenplay. John Milius, one of his friends, was one of them. He rewrote Sackler's monologue on the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, which was put into the story to explain Quint's abhorrence for sharks. Robert Shaw, he was a novelist himself, quite a good one too. 
he reconceived and condensed Milius's eight-page speech to fit the personality of Quint as he was delivering it. The actors were also used to improvising, and they improvised some of the more memorable lines of the film. For instance, Roy Scheider threw in, you're going to need a bigger boat. That was not in the original script and became one of the most popular lines from a film full of quotable dialogue. Now, as far as what the plot goes, in the finished script, once it was all said and done, we find Amity, this island resort community in the northern Atlantic United States. Amity is about to enjoy its most popular season of the year, in the sun and the fun of the 4th of July week. There's a teenage girl who washes up on the beach. She's the victim of a shark attack. Amity Police Chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, he closes the beach, but he rescinds that order due to pressure from Amity's mayor, played by Murray Hamilton. A closed beach was going to cost the tourism-dependent community dearly. He did not want to see it closed for one shark attack. Meanwhile, the attacks continued, and try as they might to keep a lid on things, they are forced with a decision to close the beach and to catch the shark as quickly as possible to keep the community from suffering financial hardship. Brody enlists the help of a wealthy oceanographer, Matt Hooper, played by Richard Rivas, and this eccentric shark hunter, of course, Robert Shaw, and they try to lure the shark near enough to kill. Of course, there's a lot more to the story than that, but I'm sure you've seen this movie. I won't get into heavy details. The studio wanted Spielberg to shoot on a studio lot, but he insisted that it needed to be done out in the Atlantic Ocean or the audience was not going to buy the story. Spielberg traveled to Australia's Great Barrier Reef, to work with expert divers Ron and Valerie Taylor, and they would capture underwater footage of great white sharks to use for the movie. While this was going on, production designer Joe Alves, he scouted locations in the northern Atlantic to use. Benchley had modeled the town of Amity after the Long Island town of Southampton, but shooting there, or any place nearby, was going to be difficult. Alves recommended Edgartown, in Martha's Vineyard because it afforded more privacy and it contained every location that they needed within five miles from their hotel. Unfortunately, once they started to prepare, special effects gurus determined that the action scenes were going to be impossible to do with a real shark. Filming a great white underwater was dangerous enough, but surface and above water elements were going to be way too difficult and too dangerous for even seasoned shark handlers. A mechanical shark that looked and moved like a real shark was needed to be constructed. So they interviewed a lot of movie people, many who worked for Disney, but none of them had any good answers for what they should do. Spielberg said, let's hire the guy that made the giant squid in 20,000 leagues under the sea. If he could do that, he could make a mechanical shark. That man happened to be retired Disney special effects head Robert Maddy. And Maddy joined on board and crafted three mechanized polyurethane sharks that performed different tasks in different situations. And these sharks altogether cost a half million dollars. The mechanical shark's appearance came from this scarred up 25-foot shark that Spielberg had filmed while he was in Australia. Spielberg called the shark Bruce after his lawyer, Bruce Raymer, and that name carried from the film footage to the mechanized version. They called it Bruce the Shark. Saltwater corrosion prevented Bruce from working often, but to avoid further delays, Spielberg would have to postpone getting any shark footage until they could work out the kinks, and that didn't happen until late in the film. So that's why you don't see the shark until well into the movie, kind of similar to 1951's The Thing, which, for many people, it actually worked in the story's favor to not show the shark. Audiences remained on edge. They never knew where and when the shark was going to strike. 
In his mind, Spielberg envisioned Jaws a tale of high adventure. It was going to be like Captain's Courageous. He felt that cinema should be an experience that you can't get from watching TV at home. He wanted audiences to feel connected to this story throughout and be absolutely riveted. This would be a horror film in structure, but it was going to be also a sociological portrait of a town mortified. They would be making decisions between life and their livelihood. Spielberg felt that humor should really be employed to break the tension, to keep audiences' guards down for the next terrifying moment. He did not want a gore fest. The implied violence is much more effective in the minds of audiences that envision the worst. Joe Alves bought two boats, one dubbed Orca and the other one dubbed Orca 2, that was specifically designed to sink at the end of the film. He repainted and redecorated them in meticulous detail for the film. They also used a tugboat with a generator that would accompany the Orca to power the barges that were holding the lighting equipment and the cameras. And they also had that mechanical shark that took 13 technicians to operate. One day's shooting was about $25,000. And that was even more costly when the Orca sank, not the one that was intended to sink either, because it sprung a leak and it caused the crew to quickly jump out before they would be covered with about 25 feet of water. And that was just one day. Bad weather, choppy seas, it was occurring on a nearly daily basis, and that pushed the shoot into late September. It was supposed to end in June, and it cost the production another $2 million every time that they would postpone. Each scene required lengthy preparation, and it necessitated consistent weather to match from shot to shot. And while only the film's final third is set on the water, two-thirds of the total shoot was spent there. The actors found the water sequences exhausting to perform, and mind-numbingly dull when they were sitting around and waiting. Hurry up and wait was the motto. Robert Shaw groveled the most about all of these delays, especially when the length of the shoot cost him his next movie. He was set to appear in a remake of Brief Encounter with Sophia Loren, but had to stick around to finish Jaws. Richard Drivers told David Brown that Jaws was the worst produced film he had ever been in. He was absolutely miserable as well. But an interesting thing happened to Dreyfus's character, who was meant to die at the end of this film. Matt Hooper, his character, was saved because there was footage that was captured of a real great white shark to be used when Matt Hooper is set to go down in an underwater cage. The shark became entangled in the cables above the cage before they had Dreyfus's stunt double in it. But the footage was so fantastic that Spielberg wanted to use it for the film. But the problem was the cage was empty. So to get around this, they had Hooper in the cage, then drop his prod and leave the cage to retrieve it. And that's when they put in that footage. And thus, Hooper remained alive despite dying in the screenplay. Verna Fields, she had worked with Spielberg to edit loads of footage to get Jaws down to a tightly paced film. They put together a work print without underwater scenes or music. But when Universal saw this, it fell flat and they became very worried that this was going to be a real dud. The music was going to have to up the tension. They considered Jerry Goldsmith for scoring duties, but Spielberg wanted Sugarland Express's John Williams. They had a good rapport and he thought that he was going to be up to the task. But initially he thought, well, maybe he might not be because the four note score that Williams had constructed, the iconic one that we all hear today, Spielberg, when he first heard it, he thought that John Williams was pranking him. He thought he was not being serious. Williams insists that he was very much serious and that this would work. And once they matched the images to John's music, Spielberg became a believer. That score is integral to the film's suspense. It keeps viewers on edge. It mounts the tension to a fever pitch. And both Fields and Williams would earn, eventually, Oscars for their contribution to Jaws, as did the sound mixing team.
Now, once they screened a rough cut with the music intact, they knew they had a real winner. Robert Shaw, after seeing it, he asked to exchange part of his salary for a profit percentage. Richard Dreyfus he remarked that if he knew Jaws was going to be this good, he'd have had a better time making it. Preview screenings achieved audience ratings of 95% of superb, the highest rating. Audio recordings revealed audiences laughing and shrieking at all of the appropriate times. Word of mouth had people lined up for four hours just to catch the next preview. Very little actually needed to change from what Spielberg delivered, save for a bit of trimming from a gruesome scene involving a decapitated leg that was done to avoid an R rating. And they would market Jaws as the next big cinematic event that everybody needed to see. They splashed $2.5 million alone into ads all across the country, including the iconic advertisement of a massive shark coming up from the depths of the ocean to devour an attractive woman swimming above, a variation of the one that was used on the cover of Benchley's book that became the iconic film poster. Shark mania soon swept the nation. And then the world. Jaws smashed box office records. It became the highest grossing film of all time up to that date. No other film in history took in over $100 million in the United States, but Jaws not only eclipsed that, it eclipsed $200 million. It went all the way up to $260 million domestically. It also added another $200 million internationally. That was another record, and it received an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. And although Spielberg's profit percentage was small, it was about 2.5%, he became a multimillionaire. From this film that everybody said he shouldn't do, and he wanted to quit on multiple times, it ended up being one of the greatest success stories of all time. Because Jaws turned Spielberg from this up-and-comer with talent to an established major filmmaker that everybody sought. In theory, though, Jaws is B-movie fair. It has little more to it than a shark terrorizing a resort community. Perhaps at the hands of an average director, this would have been junk cinema, the B-movie that it plays like when you read the screenplay, only of appeal to schlock lovers looking for a cheap thrill. But under Spielberg's direction, it's anything but. Spielberg's Jaws is a surprisingly intelligent and powerful and riveting and scary film that stays with audiences really for a lifetime. Once you've seen this film, you always think of it. It's a masterpiece of terror. It has raw suspense. Many filmmakers try to do this and they fail to recreate even to this day, even using the blueprint that Spielberg set forth. Jaws happens to be one of the most brilliantly directed suspense vehicles since the heyday of Alfred Hitchcock. And just as Psycho made people afraid to go into the shower, Jaws did the same for going into the water at the beach. It forever planted in the mind that there are unseen dangers lurking below the ocean surface that can ravage a human being in seconds in the most gruesome way imaginable. Spielberg uses a variety of tricks, many from actually Hitchcock, and some that he did in his smash debut called Duel, a made-for-TV movie that honed his skills on how to create tension without words and to let the sounds of the score and the editing of the shots and the reactions of the actors drive the emotional turmoil and terror. While Spielberg and composer John Williams are credited for most of Jaws' success, the acting is equally important. Roy Scheider is fantastic as Brody. He's confused, he's fearful, he's determined, as he should be, in his situation. Richard Dreyfuss brings in a lot of good energy and intelligence and humor. He's a perfect foil for Robert Shaw's more laid-back and gut-driven approach to sailing the seas. All three of these actors play off of each other in fascinating ways, but Shaw often steals every scene with his perfect portrayal of a madman at sea, like Ahab chasing Moby Dick. 
with excellent character development and a pitch-perfect delivery of mounting intrigue and a climactic showdown that has audiences on edge throughout, Jaws became one of the greatest thrillers ever created. A real blueprint for all movies achieving visceral suspense. I think this is absolute must-see entertainment for fans of Spielberg and just everyone looking for a suspenseful good time. I don't know anybody I would not recommend Jaws 2, and that's why I'm going to give it four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I do think that this is an excellent movie worth recommending to anybody who wants to see it. If you have not seen it, and I can't imagine there's anybody who listens to this who has not seen Jaws because it really did set the mold for so many films that came out in the 1980s. But if you have not, I do think you're in for quite a treat. Four stars out of four is the best. I wish I could give it more, but that's on any scale. A hundred out of a hundred, if you ask me, is what I would give Jaws. If you have your own thoughts on Jaws that you want to impart, you want to let me know. You can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. If you happen to be listening and you've been listening to me for a while and you just want to send a shout out, you can find my contact information. My email is the best way to get in touch with me at my website at quipster.net. For next week, of course, I'm going to be getting into the next Jaws movie called Jaws 2. It came out in 1978. It brings back Roy Scheider and Murray Hamilton and Lorraine Gary, but not Steven Spielberg, even though he said that he would direct it at one point, and I'll get into the reasons why he did not on the next episode. So check out Jaws 2 for next week if you want to keep up with the reviews as they come out. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world with a 70s movie in 80s movies. Thank you.